Guys, guys. All right, Kent's working the crowd, so everybody stop talking to Kent so he can get over here in his seat right over here. Yeah, no, we're on, Kent. We're on. Okay, all right, all is well in the world now. Um, welcome. Thank you for being here. We've got a full house. This is totally, completely awesome. And um, we've got a great study in store, as always. And for those watching our live stream, uh, we're coming to you from Herb's house. And Kent does want me to tell you that Herb's house is actually not a person's house. It's a coffee house. Okay. And he said, if you come and use the code 7777, you can get a free cup of coffee. <laughs> so, uh, if there's any pushback, just charge that to his account. It's an, it's an open tab that he, that, <laughs> that he keeps up there. So, did I say that right, Kent? Uh-huh. Okay, okay, very good. So, um, I just want to dive right into this. And uh, so let's just start with a word of prayer. Before we do, we'll be here next week as well. So uh, we've got several in in a row, and we're just making our way to the finish line here. And I'm not trying to drag this out. I was accused last time by Kent of trying to drag out Romans such that we would never finish the book of Romans, and and that's not so. I can only go as fast as you listen, okay? So... (laughs) So, that's kind of like driving with the emergency brake on, okay? So, I'll explain that later, Kent, okay? (laughs) All right, well, let's just begin a word of prayer. Father, uh, we realize how much we need more truth poured into us, and we know the powerful effect of truth in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, and so we live in a world of lies. And we need to be in a study like this to have the truth to shape us, mold us, sanctify us, mature us, equip us. So we look to you now as we look into your word. May your Holy Spirit truly be our chief and primary teacher. Use me simply as a tool, as an instrument. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're in Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16, and we're going to start looking at verse 8. I have notes through verse 16, and I already feel like we're not going to be able to get all the way through verse 16, so I'm probably going to read through about verse 13, and we'll we'll see how much we can cover. The title of this is, excuse me, No Little People no little people, and hopefully that will become self-apparent. I want to begin by reading in Paul, as he does in other of his epistles, he gets to the end, he does this in Colossians, and then goes through a list of names that were either members of, the ch- of that particular church or were with him where he was, and that's what he does here in Romans chapter 16. Uh, beginning in verse 1, and we've already looked at 1 through 7, he begins going through this list with Phoebe in verse 1, Prisca and Aquila verse 3, and then those that we looked at last time in 5 through 7. 
as it extends through verse 15, these are all saints who are in the church at Rome. And Paul's never been to Rome. So either he has met some of these in his missionary journeys and travels, and they have traveled to Rome, or by reputation, uh, they have been made known to Paul. And so he singles them out to encourage them. And you can only imagine as this letter would come to the church in Rome and the pastor stands up and reads the entire book of Romans to the entire church and you come to the end and you all of a sudden you hear your name included in the book, in the letter, how that must have just lifted their spirits. Because these are what we would say behind the scenes kind of people. They're not singled out on Sunday morning. And all of a sudden now, in the most important book in the entire Bible, arguably, here, here's their name. And then there's more names that, that Paul mentions in verses 21 through 23. You'll note they are with him in Corinth. Paul is in Corinth as he writes the book of Romans. And he even uh, mentions those who are surrounding him in Corinth. And before I even read this, I think what this says to us, we as men tend to be more project-oriented, and so many times our wives are more relational. That's just a general statement. It can be reversed. But Paul was certainly a task-oriented project-type AA personality, barnstorming through the Roman Empire, blowing into towns and preaching the gospel, creating riots, thrown into prison, you know, I mean, he, he, is, he, he is a tough man, but he's also a tender-hearted man, and he remembers names of people, and he calls them by name. You know, for us, it's, hey, brother, you know, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing? Sister, good to see you. Yeah, uh, but Paul actually remembers their names, and it speaks volumes to us, I think, of the kind of men we need to be in the body of Christ as best we can. And even last week at Trinity, we, we had name tags, which was a, a great help, so I could remember Kent's name. Um, so, um, even as we look at this list of names, names are important, and people uh, are encouraged and are affirmed uh, when you can call them by name, and that's what Paul's doing here. So, Having said that, beginning in verse, uh, verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved, uh, greet Ampelalace, who uh, the approved in Christ, greet those who are in the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet uh, Tryphaena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Perseus, in, uh, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and his mother, and mine. So, I'll just stop right there. As I was thinking about this passage, for whatever reason, I was reminded of a book that Francis Schaeffer wrote. Many of you are younger or too young to remember Francis Schaeffer. 
Um, he was a theologian, author, philosopher back in the 20th century who founded Labrie in Switzerland, which was uh, a teaching center. And people could go there as long as they wanted to go and as long as you were given job responsibilities. And then he would teach, and it was like a, a, a discipleship center on steroids. And he wrote a book called No Little People, which is why I'm calling this study No Little People. And in that, um, in that book, No Little People, he articulates that there are Christians in the church who are unnoticed as far as the, the platform and leadership. But they are extremely important to the body of Christ. I mean, it's just like your own body. You, you can't see your liver. You can't see your heart. Uh, you can see your pinky finger. I mean, which do you think is more important for your life? Well, it's the parts that you cannot see. And so Francis Schaeffer articulates what he perceives many would be thinking. He says, I'm such a, there, there are Christians who would be saying this, I'm such a small person, so limited in talents, and so limited in energy and strength and knowledge, that what I do is not really important so they begin to talk themselves out of any contribution. And Schaefer says, however, the Bible has quite a different emphasis with God. He says, and here's how he comes up with the title of his book, There Are No Little People. And he uses then the example of Moses' rod, which would almost be like, like this microphone. And he says, Moses' rod was, he used it for all those years when he was herding his father's sheep, and he would just poke sheep with this rod and, and, and move them in a direction. And it was just a stick, just a piece of wood, until God called him to go to Pharaoh. And he throws that stick down, and it becomes a snake. He uses this stick, he strikes a rock, and water comes gushing out. He uses this stick, as he stands at the Red Sea, and holds it up and says, stand back and see the salvation of the Lord, and the Red Sea parts. And the rod of Moses became the rod of God, because it was consecrated to the Lord's purposes. And Schaefer then says, that's the way it is with anyone's life. We're all just a stick. <laughs> We're all just a piece of wood. You know, we're all, in the grand scheme of things, unimportant. I mean, certainly they're in Rome. Compared, Caesar is in Rome. The, the Roman Senate is in Rome. Uh, the, the really important people in the world are in Rome. And this little laundry list here in Romans 16 is just a bunch of sticks that have been picked up by the Lord. But they have given their life to Christ and they now are being used by God to have an extraordinary impact on a church that is strategically located at the nerve center of the Roman Empire, the church at Rome. And so these, from one perspective, they're, they're just little people. The, the, in this list are slaves. There are former slaves who have now been freed. There are ladies, there are Jews that are converted, 
Gentiles. Uh, there's uh, a sister tandem. There, there's a husband and wife. And they're two kids. Who knows how old their, their kids are. And so from an earthly perspective, they're, they're just nobodies. But in the kingdom of God, they have given their life to Christ. And they are hugely important for the advancement of the gospel. So much so that in Paul's magnum opus, the book of Romans, he actually mentions them by name. That's how important they are to the, the movement of the church going forward. So, let's just go through this. And admittedly, it's a, it was a challenge for me to try to even... How do you even divide this out? So, um, they just told me... As they're putting this on the screen right now, that their fingers went numb because I've got 14 points for you. Okay, so <laughs> just to kind of discourage, I encourage you a little bit. <laughs> We're not going to get to all of that, okay? But I don't know how how to divide this out. All right, so let's just start in verse eight. And there's a beloved believer, a beloved believer. He says, "Greet Ampliatus." Now that we know that that is a common slave name. Uh, You can know where someone finds themselves in the social order of life in the Roman Empire uh, just by their name, and that's kind of true today even. Uh, How you name your children really speaks volumes about either where you are in the social structure of life or where you live regionally. I mean, do you name your children after a king of England, or do you name your child, you know, some unusual name? Um, and, and so, we do know that this was a common slave name, and there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. So, this is just one of many slaves. Um, it is reasonable to assume from, from this name, and Paul identifies this, this person in Pleopas as my beloved in the Lord. The fact that he says, my beloved, he will say in the next verse, our fellow worker, to use my indicates Paul knows him. Paul has a personal relationship with him. Uh, He's probably come across him on Paul's missionary journeys, and because of the sophisticated uh, highway system that was in the Roman Empire, uh, at this time that this slave has made his way to Rome, whether he was sold there, um, we, we, we don't know. We just know he's now in the church, but Paul knows him, and he calls him my beloved. Beloved is a term of, of deep affection. Uh, beloved is a, a, it means a, he, he's a cherished believer. He, he, he's dear to my heart. And when he adds, in the Lord, that really tells us something that we need, we need to be reminded of, that, that we may have uh, differences in background, differences of occupation, differences in age, differences in whatever, but the oneness that we have in Christ is far greater than whatever would differentiate us. Paul is a Roman citizen. If you're a slave, you're not a Roman citizen. And yet, Paul reaches across that barrier and that boundary and says, he is my beloved in the Lord. 
And with some, that would have probably been caused some people to be shocked to hear Paul reach out like that. But no, he, he, he does. And, and so, number one, we see this beloved believer, and it reminds us that the church is made up of so many different kinds of of people. When, when, when I was in college, I was in a fraternity. We all just looked alike, dressed alike, sounded alike. I think we all dated the same girl, you know. I mean, it's just, it, 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 we were all just alike, you know. And I remember after I graduated from seminary and walked into my first church, everyone didn't look alike, you know, and everyone didn't sound alike. And, but that's a part of the beauty of the church. Where, where else in a city would you find these people in one room at, at one time? It's only in the church, and the great common denominator at the deepest level is our holding together our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then second, in verse 9, there's a fellow worker. He says, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Urbanus was just a common Roman name, so no doubt he's a Roman citizen, he's, he's not a, a slave. And, and Paul singles him out as our fellow worker in Christ, so he's probably not as close to him. In fact, he may only know of him by reputation. We don't know, but what a, an incredible thing to say. He's our fellow worker. Uh, he, he, he's not just a bump on the log. He, he's not just a, a back row Baptist. You know, he, he, he's not just a spectator. Uh, he, he's not just watching everyone else do all the work, and he just shows up on Sunday morning and reaps all the benefits. No, no, he, he, he's, he's in the game, and he's on the field, and he is a, a fellow worker, he says here in the church in, in Rome, and every church needs people like Urbanus. Uh, who, who pour their life in the church and who serve the Lord together. And the fellowship that you have with another believer when you're working side by side is an even deeper fellowship than, than if one's working and the other one's just a, a, a spectator. And, and so we can imagine the contribution that this man is making to the to the church there in Rome, he is invaluable. This man, Urbanus, he's never going to preach a sermon probably. He's never going to sing a solo probably. Uh, he, he's never going to be up front probably, but he's like the oil in the engine of a, of a car. He's, he's what's keeping everything going and keeping this thing moving forward. And every church has to have men like this. And, and I hope that, that, that as we even say that, that that would challenge you to be a part of the machinery of, of your church, to pour your life, to be a fellow worker in the Lord. Well, then third, at the end of verse 9, there's a, a cherished saint. Um, Stachus, my beloved. That's, that's all he said. Now, Stachus was an uncommon Greek name, and it probably in some ways is reflective of, not only does he have an obscure name, he's probably an obscure person. And all of a sudden, now here he is, his name's in the book of Romans. And what Paul says to identify him is he says, he's my beloved. So this does indicate a close relationship that, that, that Paul had. 
as, as he traveled around, he, he, he no doubt uh, met Stachus somewhere. And four times in Romans 16, he identifies people as my beloved. And again, it just speaks to the depth and the warmth of relationship that Paul had with those who were around him. And I, and I can identify with this. I haven't been traveling as much lately, but over the last couple of years as I've traveled around the country and around the world, I mean, I can call out by name, city by city by city by city, the people who, who have become a beloved brother or sister to me who have helped me. And, and that's what's, what, what's going on here. And it also underscores that even we as men need fellowship and we need friends in the Lord, and we need those who we would call beloved uh, that, that round us out. Christianity is not a Lone Ranger religion. Uh, th- th- we are in the body of Christ as a, as a part. We're not an island separated from, from everyone else. And that's part of the beauty even of this Bible study and, and why so many of you are here late. I mean, are, you're here early and you stay late. Um, because you just love interacting with, with the other men. Well, you need that, and I need that. We all need this. So, this cherished saint. Now, let's just keep pressing through this list. Number four is an approved disciple, and that's at the beginning of verse 10. He says, greet Apollos, uh, which is a ra- another rare Greek name, uh, but it was used by the Jews and so this man may be of Jewish background. He may be a converted Jew. We don't know that. We only know that by the name that he has. But what he says about this man is very significant. He says, the approved in Christ. Now, this word approved is a Greek word, dokimos, that means it's like a metal that's put into a fiery furnace to see if this metal is genuine or not. And if it doesn't just melt and evaporate, if it, if it remains, retains its form in the fiery furnace, it's the real metal. It's the real thing. It's not a counterfeit. And this word approved means to be put into the fire to be tested and to pass the test and to be uh, approved. And so Paul says that he's approved in Christ, which means that he's been put into the fire of trials and tribulation. And what is to be assumed, because he says in Christ, is that the trial was because of his witness for the Lord, for his being identified with Christ in Rome. Now, there could not be a more difficult place to be a Christian, okay, than, than in Rome. It was a cesspool of iniquity. Whatever sin was going on in the Roman Empire, it was playing on Broadway in Rome. And, and to be a Christian in Rome and to fly your flag for Christ in Rome was not an easy place to walk the walk. And, and so no doubt, as he lived his Christian life, he was being singled out by the pagan unbelievers. And we don't know what the persecution was that he faced. Uh, could have been a loss of job, could have been loss of income. Could have been loss of relationships. Could have been loss of family relationships. We, we, we don't know. We're not told. All we need to know is that he passed the test. 
he, he didn't cower. He, he, he didn't go strangely silent and pull his flag down. Uh, he, he, he kept on uh, testifying for the Lord. And so Paul has heard about this. And Paul says he's the approved in Christ. I want you to go up to him and I want you to greet him and I want you to encourage him and I want you to affirm him, the rest of you who are in the church. And so that's what's going on here at the beginning of verse 10. And, and I, I think of a, a very helpful reference, cross-reference is James 1.12. Let me read it. Blessed is a man, Makarios, uh, just greatly blessed, is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, there's our word, dakamas, approved, pass the test, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, you need people like this in the church. One, because they encourage the witness of other Christians. If this man can stand for the Lord, then that, that puts steel in my backbone to do the same. But also, he's able to minister to other saints who are suffering. And it's, it's just true to life that when you go through a trial and you come out the other side and you've been approved, you are able to relate to people who are going through a similar type of trial. And as other believers in the church at Rome are being hammered for their faith, this man is able to come alongside of them, put his arm around them, and encourage them to remain strong as you go back to work, as you go to that godless environment where you're headed. You can, by the grace of God... By the strength of the Holy Spirit, you can remain true in, in, in your witness. And so, I don't, I don't know what trial the Lord has put you through. We all go through trials, right? None of us get a free pass in life. Part of God's inscrutable master design as we go through trials is to prepare us to minister to others who will be going through a similar type of trial. And that's why it's important that we are approved and we pass the test. Um, so, that, that's this brother, and every church needs men like this. They, I would put it this way, they're battle-tested. They've been on the front, front lines, and they're, they're battle-tested. And they have an incredible witness even to younger men in the faith. Well, let's keep going here. At the end of verse 10, there's a believing household. A believing household. He says, greet those who are in the household... Of, of, of Aristobulus. Now, what's interesting, I want you to note, is he doesn't say to greet Aristobulus. He says, greet those who are in his household. Those who are in his household are most probably slaves and servants. And Aristobulus is probably the unsaved head of the house. He's probably the master uh, who doesn't know the Lord, and so, in essence, and some of you can relate to this, um, they have an unsaved boss. And not only do they work for him, they live with him. 
in the same house. Now, you may think you're challenged where you work. At least you get to go home or go to your apartment and get some time off. These just walk down the hall and are living on site. And they're probably slaves, which means Aristobulus owns them, has bought them, bought them in a slave market, and, and owns them, and they have to do whatever he says to do. There's no, you know, HR department to make an appeal like I was abused somehow because, you know, you mispronounced my name, and so I'm filing a charge against you. No, you, you'd just be whipped if, if, if you had any kind of complaint. So, Paul says, I want, you, I want you to greet those who are in the household of Aristobulus because he understands, he's heard. What, what a challenge that they're faced with in, in, in working for this man. And what's interesting, Aristobulus was the name of the grandson of Herod the Great and was the brother of Agrippa and... Herod the Great was the one who ordered the massacre of all the baby boys in Matthew chapter 2. That's why they had to take Jesus when he was two years old or younger to Egypt to escape. We don't know that it's the same, but there's a strong likelihood it is because it's the same city also. But also, and not to get ahead of myself, but at the beginning of the next verse, greet Herodian. That's probably someone who's one of the Herodian dynasty. And so it's not a stretch to say these slaves were in the imperial palace. And Paul, in, at the end of the book of Philippians, does talk about greet the saints who are in Caesar's household. And so there are believers in Caesar's household and the extended buildings that would have surrounded that. It's very possible that these slaves are inside the imperial palace and are believers in the Lord and have, they've drawn a tough assignment to, to live their Christian life uh, really under the shadow of the imperial, the imperial throne. So this should be an encouragement to, to, to you who I have close association with un unbelievers. I mean, this should encourage, you know, unsaved wives who have to live with, or excuse me, saved wives who live with unsaved husbands. Um, in my last church that I pastored, I had what, what I called the widow's pew. Now, my, my wife would go sit on the widow's pew. I don't know why, but <laughs> I'm a little slow on the uptake. But all of those women, their husbands were still alive. They were just unbelievers. So they would come to church by themselves. And I want to tell you, those women were stalwarts in our church. I mean, they were the prayer warriors. And they were even the financial supporters. And they were the teachers in the church. And they, they were the, the organizers on things. And they played a huge part. But when church was over, they go back to the challenge of, of living with an unsaved husband who's on a totally different wavelength than the wavelength she was on when she came to church. Well, that can be said of these who are in, <clears throat> who are in this household. 
And the church has plenty of people like this. They come to church by themselves. And they left their unconverted family members back at home. And if that even describes you, then be encouraged to know that there are others, even in the Bible, who, who are just like that. So let's just keep pressing through this list. The beginning of verse 11, there's a converted Jew. He says, greet uh, Herodian, uh, my kinsman. Now, when he says my kinsman, he's talking about my fellow countrymen. He's talking about a fellow Jew. Um, that means Herodian is a converted Jew. That he is not only a physical Jew, but he's a spiritual Jew. He knows the Lord. And what a trophy of grace he is. Because at this time, according to Romans 11 earlier, God has hardened the hearts of the nation Israel. And he has put them into a state of spiritual stupor. They have eyes to see, but they cannot see. They have ears to hear, but they cannot hear. And the judgment of God has come down heavy upon the nation Israel for their crucifixion of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... For this man, my, my kinsman, for him to be a converted Jew, I mean, he, he is like a diamond in a coal mine. I mean, he, 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 he stands out as the grace of God has been unusually uh, poured out upon him. Now, Herodian um, designates him probably as belonging to Herod's household and, and inner circle and um, which makes him all the more a trophy of grace. Uh, you know, the Bible says it, it, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because a rich man, um, has, he self-perceives he has no needs. He has, all he has to do is make a phone call. All he has to do is dip into his pocket, and he can take care of his needs. The poor man has to pray, walk by faith. And the rich man's living for this world. He, 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 he's not laying up treasure in heaven. He's laying up treasure in this world. And that's why it's so rare uh, for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um, th there are many rich people who are converted. And being rich is a pretty relative thing. You compare yourself to someone else. Um, they may be rich to you, but not rich to someone else. But nevertheless, Herodian here in that circle of, of people, uh, no, no doubt, he, he's, he's running with a fast crowd, an elite crowd, and he's a converted Jew. So he, he is just like doubly a trophy of, of, of God's grace. And people like this, we could almost call them a minority in the church. Just the mere fact he's a converted Jew puts him in, in that category. And there are so many more poor people than there are rich people in the world. And yet, that didn't cause him to want to stay on the periphery of the church and go, well, there's not a lot of other people in the church that look like me and talk like me and are, are like me. I don't have a whole lot in common with everyone else. No, he, he, he didn't play the, uh, the excuse card. Uh, no, he, he got into the life of the church, even though he was of Jewish background, and even though he is in these, this Herodian circle, 
and, and he gets next to a bunch of slaves, the Gentile slaves, and he puts his shoulder to the same plow, and he just begins to serve the Lord, and, and these differences just begin to evaporate in the church, and, and the oneness that we have in Christ rises to a far higher level. And so this is a converted Jew, and there are always people like this that are greatly needed in the church. Now, let's just keep going here. At the end of verse 11, a redeemed house. He says, greet those of the household of Narcissus, and he says, who are in the Lord. Now, who are in the Lord refers to those who are in the household. So, Narcissus is probably an unbeliever, and those who are in his household, once again, as we just saw in verse 10, the, these, these are... Um, people who are servants and slaves in the household. And labor was cheap in the Roman Empire. And if you were a man of means, you wouldn't just have one or two slaves. You know, you would, you would have a bunch. And taking care of all of your needs. And, and so, those who are in this household have become believers in Christ. How, we don't know. But the, the gospel has come to them. And how interesting that the gospel has, has, or certainly the Spirit of God, has bypassed Narcissus, but come to the slaves. And better to be one of those slaves and be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven than to be a citizen of the kingdom of Rome, but be alienated from God. And so, uh, Narcissus, we do know that there was a very prominent man in Rome at this time who was a secretary of the emperor and became very rich and powerful because he controlled the access to the emperor. And so, he would have been given lots of bribes to be able to just have 15 minutes with the emperor as I can present my, my business proposal or I need a bridge built or, or whatever. And so, Narcissus would be putting that in his pocket. Yeah, I'll give you 15 minutes with him, but make it quick. And so, he is kind of almost like a power behind the throne. If that's the same individual here, once again, it speaks volumes of the gospel penetrating into the innermost circles of the Roman Empire. Where Paul himself will never be able to go to preach the gospel actually in Caesar's household, but there are slaves and servants who will be able to go where the great preacher cannot go and take the gospel there. And again, it just shows how Christianity is a team sport. I mean, you know, uh, we, everybody's got a part to play on the team, and the team can't win unless everybody's playing their part. And these slaves are playing their part. And can't you imagine as they come together for, for church on, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, probably on a Sunday night, for them how just refreshing it was to be around some Christians who are like-minded, we believe the same thing, we've got the same convictions, that it's just like fuel in their tank to go back into Caesar's household and, and, and to live the Christian life where they don't have as much freedom to, 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 to talk like they do when they come to church. And again, it just speaks to the beauty of the church and the depth of even 
fellowship and communication that we have with one another. We can say things to one another that we, we cannot say to unsaved relatives and unsaved work associates. So that's just a little insight into these people. Let's just keep pressing on here. In, in verse 12, at the beginning of verse 12, we see a sister tandem, a sister tandem. He says, greet uh, Tryphahina and Tryphusa. And because their names sound so much alike, these, these are two women, by the way. It's a feminine ending, you see, to their, to their name, ending in, a, in an A. Um, these are two women, and they are probably sisters. And many reputable commentators suggest they could very possibly be twin sisters because of the, <clears throat> of the commonality of their name. It even just phonetically sounds the same. And many times parents will name their kids uh, names that sound something alike. I mean, I have a James and a John. Um, Kent has an Abby and an Anna. Um, you know, there was a Mary and Martha. In, in the gospel accounts. And so probably these are two, two sisters who grew up together and have come to faith in Jesus Christ and now have entered into a new family, uh, a spiritual family, the people of God. And they have found a new home in the church. And Paul identifies him, them here as workers in the Lord. I'm telling you, there, there is nothing that compares to some women who are turned on to the Lord in the life of a church. I mean, you talk about multitasking. I mean, you talk about being a spiritual SWAT team. You, you talk about how women can pour themselves in, into a church and just make things happen behind the scenes that you, you don't want to go to church where it's a men's Bible study okay? <laughs> you want to go to a church where there's men and women, but there are some women like these sisters who are workers in the Lord. And just to give you some perspective on this, the word workers uh, means to labor to the point of weariness. It means labor to the point of exhaustion. And this word is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as toil, weary, worked hard, labored, diligently labored. I won't give you all the cross-references for that. But notice what they're working in. It says, in the Lord. Do you see that? They're just pouring themselves into gospel work, kingdom work, eternal work, uh, church work. And for whatever reason, their circumstances have freed up their time to be able to do this. Now, there are a lot of precious women in the church who aren't freed up. They, they, they may have four children at home, and they're, they're pretty tied down uh, there at home. Or they, they have uh, a job out in the workforce, and they, they don't have the time that these two sisters had. For whatever reason, financially, they were able to just be like legs on a table, upholding the table, upholding the Lord's work. And ladies like this in the church just 
keep the church going. I, I don't know a lot about most everything, but I know church. <laughs> I, 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 I've been in, on the inside of a church as a pastor for 35 years. And I know it's women like this that keep the thing going. They set up, they serve, they take down, they pour, they clean up, they put away, they organize, they distribute, they cook, they polish, they multitask, they greet, they, they visit. I mean, they, they are uh, a complete package. And so Paul has no doubt heard what's going on there in the church at Rome as people have brought him uh, word. He's in Corinth. And, and he says, oh, yeah, you've got, to, you've got to greet these two women. Just You're greeting them or just keep putting fuel in their tank because they've got to keep on with what they're doing in the church. Greet them. Then at the end of verse 12, here's a tireless woman. And I just want to draw to your attention how many women are being mentioned here. Out of the 26 names, nine are women. What a major significant part. And I'll just tell you, it wasn't that way in the Roman Empire in the secular world. Uh, part of the beauty of the church is how women were elevated and affirmed with dignity and worth and value in the church. And so at the end of verse 12, he says, greet per se the beloved. Well, this is a woman, and the definite article, the beloved, really especially singles her out. She's just not our beloved, my beloved, a beloved. She is the beloved. And please note who has worked hard. What's interesting is that's in the past tense. Now, she's still alive, and so this probably means that this woman is an older saint, and she is what I would call a matriarch in the church, and she probably has poured her life into the church in those years when she had energy to give and was probably like these tandem sisters, and now she's older, and now she can't just do everything that she once did, but no doubt her, the godliness of her life, the example of her life, uh, the wisdom for the younger women, she remains a significant part of, of this church. Uh, she might even have to be helped a little bit to get into the building. But when she walks in, people know when she's here because they want to go up and rub shoulders with her and put their arm around her and talk to her. And so Paul says, greet, uh, per se, the beloved, the beloved. I mean, this woman is so loved in this church and has such a special place in our hearts. And she's beloved because she has worked hard. It's not just because she's sweet. It's because she's had sweat. I mean, she has worked hard. And this is the same word that I just talked about in the previous verse for um, these twin sisters who are workers in the Lord. Well, it's the same word here, who has worked hard, yet Paul adds the adverb hard. She didn't just work to the point of exhaustion. She worked hard. I mean, she carried her, her load 
and she carried the load of a bunch of other people. And there are just some people in the church who do the work of 10 people. Well, this woman is, is one of those. She worked hard. And I looked up this word hard just out of curiosity. And it's translated other places in the New Testament. Great, more. I mean, she did more than her share of the load. Uh, large amount, more, most, greater, plentiful. Um, women like this are what make the church so unique. She wouldn't be much down at the business. She'd probably been let go. But she remains a pillar in the church. Um, and the reason I'm kind of tearing up, uh, last week I got a phone call. A precious lady in the last church that I pastored went to be with the Lord. Every sermon that I have preached for the last 45 years, she has that cassette tape. And she was the keeper of all my sermons. Anytime anyone wanted a copy of one of my sermons, you go talk to this lady. Not only does she keep every single sermon, and I preach five times a week, she transcribed many of them. She wasn't paid a cent. That was just her life. That was her work. I couldn't have afforded to pay someone like that. This was all just gratis because she loved the Lord. We bought a church building, had an organ in it. Who in the world's going to play this organ? <laughs> I mean, it's hard for me to teach someone to play the organ. That was a joke. I said to her, someone told me, like, years ago you played an organ. I said, would you mind playing? Do you think you could play the organ? Man, she's up at the church at night practicing how to play the organ, gets on that organ every Sunday for 12 years. She's on that organ. We didn't pay her a cent. We're having to pay some other prima donnas stuff. But she's just grinding it out. You pull a woman like that out of the church to go be with the Lord, it's going to take a committee to take her place. And you couldn't afford to pay the committee whatever they would need. So this is a tireless woman. Um, I think we'll stop right there. Because I need something for next week <laughs> on these names. I need a couple names to work with. So we'll just stop at, at verse 12. Um, and I guess I would say in conclusion that the reason... Paul doesn't say any more about these people. He knew more about them. 
is he probably knew it would just embarrass them. Because people like this don't like to have their name called out. Um, they just like to stay in the shadows and do the heavy lifting to make a church move forward. I, I began by talking about Francis Schaeffer in this book, No Little People, before I just open it up for questions or comments. Let, let me just conclude by just quoting Schaefer one more time because it really makes the point. He said, the people who receive praise from the Lord Jesus will not in every case be the people who hold leadership in this life. There will be many persons who are just sticks of wood that stayed close to God and were used in power by Him. Schaefer then says, every Christian is to be a, a rod of God. We must remember that in God's sight, there are no little people. Only one thing is important, colon, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us. In other words, the only thing that really matters is that your life is committed to the Lord and you're available and usable to the Lord. And then he concludes with this sentence. Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under His Lordship in the whole of life, may by God's grace change the flow of an entire generation. Close quote. A lot of somebodies in this life are going to be at the end of the line in heaven. And a lot of nobodies down here are going to be at the head of the line in heaven. It's going to take another world to find out who really had their oar in the water and was pulling their oar. It's going to take another world to find out who were just the prima donnas, getting all the credit, but not really doing much work. But who, was really, who really had their shoulder to the plow and were in the field and were doing the work? The Lord sees and the Lord remembers and the Lord will reward on the last day those servants. So be encouraged. You, you may never preach a sermon. Uh, you may never sing a solo. You may never have your name in the church bulletin. But your name is recorded in heaven. And the Lord knows. And your, your part may be far more strategic than the part of someone else. Everybody know, he doesn't even need a name tag. Everybody knows who that is. Your influence may be far greater in God's estimation. So, let me close uh, by just opening up for comment, question, Sorry for my voice to kind of go out. Only dogs can hear me from blocks away when I start crying. Um, so, any comment? Any thought? Yes. Yes, yes, Grant. We know that a second pastor has been arrested in Canada in the middle of a highway on his knees with his hands 
cuffed behind his back and yeah. dragged into the police car and then put in solitary confinement yeah. just for the heinous crime of conducting a, a Christian worship service. Yeah, wow. Um, it may be that I'm thinking that one of the reasons that Paul mentions greet for each one of these people yeah. is that if, if they had to go to another church somewhere, in another part of the world besides Rome, they, they would be known yeah. by their name that they were a, sure. a, someone that could be trusted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is to say? He does say in the verses we looked at last time, um, and their name escapes me out of the 26 people in this list, but they were my fellow prisoners. So they were in prison with Paul. And you can imagine how that welded their hearts together. Yeah. John, it's good to see you. I hadn't been able to see you in a while. Thrilled you're here. Great to see you. Someone else? Anyone else have a comment, a question, thought? I, I, I realize it's kind of hard to come up with a question looking at this list, but just to remind us all, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, rebuke, re, you know, training of man of God and righteousness. Um, this is profitable for us even going through this. I actually had a question. Uh, yeah, here. Yeah, that's not for sing a solo. That no. is to, okay. <laughs> Believe me, you don't. <laughs> Speaking you, of, <laughs> you don't want me to sing. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm entering into um, ministry in a very, very small church and looking at trying to build a youth program. Yeah. Um, how do you cultivate a community like this where you have that level of support where you? How do you find those people? How do you, you build that? Because it'll be pretty much... Are you talking about adults or are you talking about the... the... Adults, kids, I'm going to be basically building from scratch. Yeah. Well, like I said, I am an expert in the church. So... <laughs> um, obviously, there are some challenges there. Um, I've started youth ministries from scratch. Um, and you... You know, there are leaders and followers... And it's helpful if you can find a couple of leaders who are like bell cows that the others will follow. And so I went to teenagers that were leaders and personally, individually, spent some time with them and asked them, invited them if they would come to the first, you know, gathering. And because and I, I knew if they would come, then that would attract, you know, the second wave of people. And then I went to some parents and uh, appealed to them just to get this balloon up and off the ground and in the air. I, I needed to start somewhere. And I knew that they might simply be just in the initiation stage and that there would be other adults that would come in once this was up and going. And so you, you just need to, to, as you think about the adult support, that it, this doesn't mean that they have to work there for the next 20 years. You know, just just give me some kind of even temporal commitment to help us get this started and to, and to get this going. Um, youth ministry can be highly relational, and um, and so there's no substitute for spending time with with kids and and putting your arm around them. But I would also be quick to say that you don't dummy down the message. 
you, you just cut it up into smaller pieces, but it's the same steak. And so what they hear in your youth group needs to be exactly what they hear from the pulpit. And what they hear from the pulpit needs to be exactly what they hear in the youth group. So th this doesn't need to be uh, so watered down. And I know you wouldn't do that, but just to remind you, it, it still needs to be, um, you know, milk for some, but strong meat for others. And, um, you know, it, it just reflecting back, you know, I, you need to be a little bit of a Pied Piper and be a um, someone whose kids like to be with. And, and so that, that does require some humor and some things like that. They just can't feel like this is a mausoleum. Um, that, you know, that this, that this, this is a, a, a fun place to be. Uh, but with a little, you, you attract more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. So th there has to be with, with youth ministry some of that. So I, I don't know if that's, uh, yeah, helpful or not. But I, I tell you, God put the power in the Bible. And they need the Bible. And you also have to be aware of this. And sorry to kind of keep talking here. But you, you, didn't, you do need to be aware that a lot of these high school kids are unconverted. And just because they come from Christian families and Christian homes doesn't mean that they're born again. And that they know the Lord. And, and so there is an evangelistic, it's, it's, it's a ripe harvest field to do youth ministry. And that was the thing that I loved about it, is that I could win people to Christ. Because that's the, it, that's the golden age for, for, for people to, to come to faith in Christ. And so I, I would always have that in, in mind, that I'm, I'm a fisher of men and a fisher of women teenagers, and that's a ripe harvest field. And I, just because your dad's the chairman of the elders or whatever doesn't mean that you actually know the Lord. I mean, you've got to meet the risen Christ yourself. So that would be another thing that, that, that I would say. So I can keep going, you know. <laughs> Music's important to youth. So, I, I see I've run the stop sign and have gone past our time. Um, men, thank you for being here. And I, I realize this is kind of like a challenging passage to make, sit up and walk. But I pray that there's been some things that have been brought out of this text that would be helpful for your Christian life and Christian walk. We're committed to the entire book of Romans. And I, and I think in closing of what J.C. Ryle, the great Englishman in the 19th century said, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And so I think we can say it takes the whole book of Romans to make a whole Christian. So we just can't cherry pick, you know, those mountain peaks. We, we, we've, we've got to hit every verse because there's something in there that I need. So just know how important you are in the life of your church. And um, just the last thing I'll say, I'll be preaching here this Sunday at Trinity, uh, Genesis 1, 3 through 5. Let, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So I can hardly wait for Sunday to be able to preach that passage for God to command the universe to be lit up in a moment. So... I'll just close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for these verses. 
thank you for people just like that in this room right now. I pray for these men that you will make them the beloved, that you will make them fellow workers, that even if they're in the household of some unbelieving boss, that they will continue to be a strong Christian right where you have planted them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.